My name is Luke, for those of you who don't know, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and tonight we're going to be back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be in verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. If you put these things before the brothers then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Pray with me. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you have spoken to us in your word, and we have received it. God, we give you glory as the Savior of all people. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes to see and love what is here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today talks about being a good servant of Christ Jesus. And Christians are called to be servants. Christians are called to be servants. We are not called to be masters. We are not called to be great. Christians are called to be servants of Christ. What that means is that as Christians, as servants, we put someone else's needs, someone else's desires, someone else's purpose before our own. We don't seek our own glory. We seek God's glory in Christ. Servants are not masters. They don't demand service for themselves. They're not the big people in the room who show up and demand that someone carries their bag or that someone shields them from the ordinary people. Christians are servants. We put others' interests before our own. We lay down our lives the way that our King Jesus did. And in order to serve faithfully, we need to be trained in the right ways. A servant who is not trained in the right ways, a servant who is bad at his job or at her job, is not a good servant. (laughs) They are not a blessing to their master if they're constantly making mistakes. If their master is having to constantly clean up the mess, that is a bad servant rather than a good servant. The difference is, how have you been trained? A good servant is not just someone who has a good attitude. As important as attitude is, A good servant also has actions that follow. They live in a way that pleases their master. In our passage this evening, we just read it, Paul calls Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And he shows him the necessary training that he's going to need in order to do that. Timothy needs to be trained in the word. He needs to be trained for godliness. And all of this falls under the future goal in which Timothy is training for, and that is 
training for eternity. So we're going to look at three aspects, three characteristics of a good servant from our passage. The first, good servants are trained in the words of faith. They are trained in the words of faith. Second, good servants train for godliness. And then third, good servants hope in the living God. So let's look at the first characteristic. Good servants are trained in the words of faith. Look at verse 6. We just read it. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul calls Timothy to put these things before the brothers, put these things before the church. But we should ask ourselves, what are these things referring to? Right? This is where grammar comes in mind. We need to look back and say, what's the reference for these things? And if you recall, over the last few weeks, Paul has been writing to Timothy about the church's mission in proclaiming the truth. Two weeks ago, Pastor John preached on the church as it proclaims its confession, the mystery of godliness. The church functions as a pillar and buttress to the truth. It upholds the truth for all to see. It protects the truth. Last week, Pastor John pointed out the demonic teaching. The reason the church has to proclaim truth, the reason the church has to protect the truth, is because there are many false teachers who are influenced by deceitful and demonic teachings. That's what we saw in verses 1 through 5. That demonic teaching, especially in 1 Timothy, takes the form of rejecting the good creation that God has made and making its own rules and regulations to be holier than thou, to, to keep yourself unstained from the good world that God created by cleansing yourself by your good deeds from it. You could also call this asceticism. So when Paul says, put these things before the brothers, I think what Paul's talking about is the right proclamation of the gospel. These things refers to the mystery of godliness that the church is to confess. We see it in verse 16 of chapter 3. He was manifested in the flesh, in the flesh. That's important. If the false teachers are saying, world bad, keep yourself from the world, keep yourself from physical stuff, well, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So Timothy is to put that confession of faith, the true teaching of the gospel, before the brothers, especially as it relates to how Christians engage with the world that God created. And notice, the way that Timothy is going to be a good servant is how. How does Timothy serve the church? It's through his teaching. If you put these things, then you will be a good servant. If you don't put these things, the implication is, then you won't be a good servant. This is really important to see in our day and age. Timothy is supposed to hold out the words of faith 
the sound doctrine that he has followed, and he's supposed to confess and proclaim the mystery of godliness to those. In doing so, he is being a good servant. But there are many people who would look at things like sound doctrine in the church today, and they would say, that actually seems kind of unloving to call someone a false teacher. Right? To say that someone's teaching is demonic, I mean, can you imagine if you posted something like that on Facebook or on Twitter, the sort of reactions? People would call you hurtful. They would call you judgmental. They would call you mean-spirited. Many churches and many Christians today can resist teaching sound doctrine because it feels to us unloving or harsh. It seems more loving to accept everybody, regardless of their beliefs, to show love to everyone, regardless of what they confess. But according to Paul, that attitude actually keeps the church from fulfilling its mission. It keeps the church from being good servants. If you never tell someone that something they believe is false, if it's truly false, then you're not serving them. You're not actually helping them, and you're not glorifying Christ. Servants of Christ hold out true teaching. They put it before people. They proclaim it. They're not ashamed of it. And in doing so, they serve Christ. How does teaching, though, serve the church? The way I think about it is teaching of sound doctrine for the church is like an anchor that sinks into the bottom of the sea to keep a boat from drifting and being blown about by the waves. So if you go up to Dubai Marina, you park your boat. I don't know if any of you guys have a boat in Dubai Marina, but you park your boat there. What are you going to do? You're going to put an anchor down to be able to hold it fast, right? Without that anchor, there is a chance that that boat will be blown away and will drift. Waves will carry it down. Now, the anchor isn't the only thing that a boat is concerned about. Sound doctrine is not the only thing that the church does. The church does many things in its mission to proclaim Christ to the world. We love people. We serve people. We do good deeds, right? We outdo one another in showing honor for each other. But if you don't have that anchor of sound doctrine sinking there, holding you fast, what's going to happen is you're going to wake up, and all of a sudden you're going to see you've drifted way off course. You are no longer doing what you are called to do. Instead, you are being blown about by the wind and by the waves. Sound doctrine isn't the only thing that matters, but without it, the church will drift in the sea of worldliness. And notice, in order to teach the right things, Timothy had to be trained in the right ways. He had to be trained in the words of faith and in sound doctrine. As Christians, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to see wondrous things. But the Holy Spirit does that through teachers, often. He does it through training. So Timothy hadn't been to a formal seminary that we know of. He hadn't gotten a master's degree in divinity, but he had been well-trained. Right. Timothy was trained by Paul. Timothy was trained by his grandmother and his mother. So Paul in 2 Timothy writes and says, Timothy, you've been taught the words of truth. You've learned it from a young age. He says, I'm reminding you of your sincere faith, 
a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells with you as well. So how was Timothy trained? Well, a faith dwelt in Lois and Eunice and then him. And then Paul's going to explain that even later in the letter. He says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Christians are called to careful thinking. Christians are called to be learned in the words of faith and sound doctrine. The reason for that is because the stakes are high. Our previous passage talked about teaching that's deceitful and demonic. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to be able to combat teaching that is of demons and that is intentionally deceitful? You need to be able to know how the Bible fits together. You need to not only know stories from the Bible, but you need to know the message of the Bible. You need to be able to carefully discern when you hear someone say something, say, okay, you're saying this thing that's true, but you're also saying this thing that's false, and that actually contradicts the true thing that you're saying. That takes work. It takes careful thinking. But where did Timothy learn that? He learned it from his mother and his grandmother, or at least they gave him a head start on it. One implication that this should have for us is that we should take really seriously the discipleship of our children as a church. There is demonic teaching out there. There is deceitful teaching out there. Deceitful teaching is deceitful. It looks good. It sounds like truth, but it's not. It's a lie. How are our children going to be equipped to deal with it? Well, as a church, we try to do that through our Redeemer Kids ministry. Right, we have a kids call every Saturday, and what we do is we try and teach the Bible. We show how it points to Jesus. We try and help them understand the truths of Scripture. Grace taught last week. I taught this week. We're trying to teach our children how to think. But the primary responsibility for that isn't with Redeemer Kids ministry. It's with parents. Parents, if you have kids, your goal for your children, one of your goals, should be that they are able to identify what is true from what is false. They should be able to hear things that's going on in their school or that they read on the internet when they're a teenager, and that they have biblical understanding to be able to spot what's demonic and what is of God. Parents have a high and glorious calling. And if your children are going to learn that, what does that mean? It means that you should know it as well. You need to be able to know what the Bible says. Not just Bible stories, but how the Bible fits together and what it says about certain things. The false teachers that Paul's dealing with, they had a doctrine of creation that was wrong. They had a doctrine of sanctification, of growing in holiness, that was wrong. They had a doctrine of salvation that was wrong. Likely, they could say good Bible stories, but when they put it all together, it led to false doctrine. Do you know what is true from what is false? 
Do you know what the Bible says about men and women? Do you know what the Bible says about money and how we ought to use it? What the Bible says about our bodies, about sexual purity? Do you know what the Bible says about fame and purpose? You should know that yourselves, and you should seek to pass that knowledge along to your children. And before I move on, a quick word to mothers. Notice the impact that these two women had in Timothy's life. Timothy has been trained in the words of faith, and the people that Paul highlights in the next letter are his mother and his grandmother. Timothy's father was likely an unbeliever, but he learned the scriptures from his mother and his grandmother. Mothers, I know that it can feel very difficult to train children. <laughs> it can feel very exhausting. You have stages where first there's diapers, then your kids get bigger and they're pulling every single cup out of the cupboard, and so now you have dishes, then they get bigger and you have to run them around to all these different places, so then you have driving. Right? The three D's of parenting. I'm going to write a book one day. Dishes, diapers, driving. You have these phases. And in the midst of that, it can feel absolutely exhausting and like you're doing nothing. And yet, Timothy would not have been who he was if his mother and his grandmother had not have been who they were. They were shaped by the scriptures, and they passed on scripture to their son, so he can serve as a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of faith. Okay, so good servants are trained in the word of faith. Second thing that we see, good servants train for godliness. Look at verse 7 here. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value— godliness is of value in every way. So Paul talks about two types of training in this section, right? What we've been reading, he talks first about positive training. He talks about training in the Word, and now he's going to talk about training for godliness. And the hinge there is verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is referring to the false teaching that Paul talked about in 1 through 6. So that false teaching had its beliefs, and it had its practice. Paul is calling Timothy to be trained in the right belief, and then here he's going to talk about training in godliness, the right practice of those beliefs. This false teaching forbid marriage, you can see that in verse 3, and required abstinence, keep away from certain foods that God created. It claimed a level of holiness, but it's actually, according to Paul, irreverent. You could translate that profane, which would be the opposite of holy. This false teaching claimed a level of mystical wisdom, but Paul calls it what? <laughs> Silly. Literally, this word would mean it like an old wives' tale, like some superstitious thing that you would pass along. These irreverent, silly myths, they had their own teaching and their own practice, but Paul calls, calls Timothy to right teaching and right practice, which in turn requires the right sort of training. And he emphasizes two types of training, one that he shouldn't do, or he shouldn't focus on, and one that he should. 
The first is bodily training. So if you look at our passage, it says, bodily training is of some value. The ESV and the NIV both translate that as some value. But I think a better translation would be little value. Some is kind of like, yeah, there's some value to it. But I think the idea of the old King James Version actually captures it better. And that is, it profits little. That's a whole different world than saying, yeah, there's, there's some value to it. Instead saying, this actually profits little. What does Paul mean by bodily training? I don't think he's talking about cycling. I think he's talking about running. I think he's talking about boxing. I think the bodily training that Paul's talking about is an approach of life that emphasizes and focuses on the body as it relates to religion. I think he's talking about the beating of the body, the abstaining from things in the body that these false teachers were teaching, this asceticism. It's similar with Colossians 2. So this false teaching, this demonic deceitful teaching, was teaching to abstain from the world, and that's how you'll be clean. But the problem is, it never deals with our sin. We can make rules and regulations that we keep. Don't watch this movie. Don't eat that food. Make sure you dress this way. Make sure you pray this way. You can keep all of those rules and never deal with our rebellious, sinful nature. That actually is what makes us unclean. Jesus taught, food doesn't defile us. We're already defiled. This is similar to Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though still alive, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish when they're used, according to human precepts and teaching. These, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. That sounds a lot like the demonic teaching. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They profit little if you are actually trying to stop yourself from sinning. Matthew Henry, a commentator writing in 1700. Isn't it amazing that you can learn amazing things from old, old people, says this. He says, outward acts of self-denial profit little. What will it avail us to put to death the deeds of the body if we do not put to death sin? Disciplining the body, keeping away from unclean foods, keeping away from unclean actions, has little power or profit because it doesn't touch our problem, and that is our sin. The only way that sin is dealt with is not by what you can do to keep the law perfectly or what you can do to put up regulations to keep sin away. The only way that sin is dealt with is when you bring it out into the open and bring it to Christ. Jesus came and he died for sin. He paid for sin so that we could be forgiven. We cannot make ourselves clean by ourselves. But Jesus can. He can take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. 
He can take away our filth and give us his purity. And that happens when we believe, not when we put up all these rules and try and keep them by ourselves. Paul says, don't train in a bodily way for your religion. Instead, train for godliness. To be godly means you're devoted to God. It means you center your life around God. God is your biggest priority. You seek to worship him. You seek to please him. You seek to glorify him. You listen to him. You do what he says. Godly people have God at the center of their universe. And there's no magical formula for how we train for godliness. I think that's why Paul doesn't say, train for godliness by doing all of these different steps. The way you keep God at the center of your life is by keeping God at the center of your life. The practice of godliness, the training of godliness, is exactly how we train for godliness. To get a bit more specific, though, I think we can look back at the opposite of what these false teachers were saying in our previous section and get a clue for what it looks like. So these false teachers are saying, don't engage with the world. But Paul says, you can engage with the world in the right way. And the way in which you engage with the world is by the word of God and prayer. As we live in this world in a way that's shaped by what God says, in a way that listens to the word, being trained in the word of faith, and then that makes our petition to God, that treats the things of the world as if they belong to God, we are trained in our devotion to God. We can think of our life like a trampoline. So we have a trampoline at our house. It's a small one. But what you do, if you, if you take all of these balls, say you have tennis balls, and you put them on the outside of a trampoline, and you put a big heavy object in the center, what's going to happen? It's going to, well, it will bounce if you throw it down, Iowa, but if you put it just right in the center, what's going to happen is it's going to weigh the trampoline down, and all the balls are going to run towards that. What's happened is that object has become the center of that trampoline, and everything else on the trampoline becomes oriented to it. Godly people have God at the center of our lives, and everything else runs towards God. God is the weightiest thing in our reality. God is the weightiest being in our lives, and everything should be oriented in that direction. Is that true of you? When you honestly take a step back and reflect upon your life, is God at the center or is something else? Is God your greatest priority or is it your job? Is it the money that your job can provide? Is it your family and making sure that you bring honor to your family? Is it your kids and their future? Is it what other people think about you? Is it temporary pleasure? What are you living your life for? What's the heaviest object that's determining where all the balls on the outside of the trampoline run to? When we spend time taking in the word and walking prayerfully in this world, we help maintain God as the center. I had a pastor at a church I worked at in the States who would say, our hearts can leak, so we need to take in the word to refill 
we have a slow drip in our bucket. But taking in the word, walking in prayer, helps us keep God at the center. He becomes the heaviest object in our lives, and we train ourselves for godliness. Focusing on bodily regulations, it profits little. But Paul says training for godliness profits much. There is value in every way. How is that the case? Well, that leads to the next and final thing that we'll see. Good servants hope in the living God. Look at the second half of verse 8. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Good servants train in the Word, and they train for godliness, because they have their hope set on the living God. They can see the eternal value that their training brings them. God is their hope. Now, just a quick note on something that could be confusing. I won't spend much time on this, but it says God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What Paul doesn't mean is that everyone will be saved, especially those who believe. The reason for that is because that runs contradiction to everything Paul's been talking about. Paul's talking about the dangers of life. Some will depart from the faith. Right? There's demonic and deceitful teaching. We need to toil and we need to strive. We need to train ourselves for godliness. So this is not teaching universalism. What it is teaching, I think, is it's showing the scope of God's salvation. You could translate that especially. The Greek word is melista. So if you wanted to impress someone at the next dinner party that you're part of, be like, huh, melista. What does melista mean? Well, it could be especially. It could also mean that is, or namely. So God is the Savior of all people in scope, namely those who believe. So he's talking about all kinds of people. We have all kinds of people in this room right now. And God is the Savior of all of our peoples. <laughs> that is, those from these groups who believe in God. These verses here show that Paul is under no illusion of the difficulty of the Christian life. Some of us can be caught off guard when we think it's just hard to follow Jesus. Well, Paul knows that it's hard to follow Jesus. He's not surprised by the difficulty of following Jesus. He's already mentioned that we should expect some people who profess to be Christians to depart from the faith. And here he uses the word toil and strive to describe training for godliness. There is a sense in which the hardest thing you will ever do in your life is persevere as a Christian. Now, we do not do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength that God supplies. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son to sustain us, to strengthen us, to transform us. But we toil and strive as He powerfully works within us. Persevering as a Christian is one of the hardest things that you will ever do because we have sinful natures that pull us away from following Jesus. There are ditches and dangers on both sides. On the one side, there's the legalism of trying to be good enough to earn God's favor that runs contrary to the gospel. 
On the other side, maybe we grew up in that setting and we swing the other direction and we say, no, I can enjoy this world as much as I want. Before long, we realize that we worship the world instead of God. We have Satan and his demons seeking to keep us from trusting in Jesus. And this world seeks to draw our pleasures. So what is going to keep us training for godliness? How do you keep going when you have all these dangers going on? The only thing that will keep us toiling and striving for godliness is by seeing the value that godliness provides. By seeing the value of God's promise. Trusting the promises of God is the way in which we keep God at the center of our world because we walk by faith daily saying, Lord, I believe you here. Lord, you have said this and I am trusting that it's true. One of the reasons why our church is memorizing fighter verses, so Sonny, when he did the welcome, he welcomed us with one of our fighter verses. One of the reasons why we're memorizing fighter verses is so we would train ourselves in the word to be able to use in the training for godliness. Trusting God's promise will benefit you now by bringing peace and joy in the present life because it orients you to God, but will also bring everlasting joy and eternal gain in the future. When you feel empty and run down, you can trust that the Lord is the one who satisfies you with good. Psalm 103, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. When you don't know which way to turn, you can keep God at the center of your life by trusting Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. When you fear what the future may bring, you're uncertain about what tomorrow holds, you can run to the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which will never be moved. When the world tempts you with sin, you look through it and see the pleasures that exist at God's right hand. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you've been memorizing the fighter verses with us, then you have all of those promises in your tool belt for training for godliness. You have all of those that you can incorporate into your training regiment to keep you focused on God as the center. Each one of these verses helps us to keep God in mind as the heaviest object in our universe, as he truly is. He is the center of all things, whether we acknowledge it or not. And each one of these promises helps us to hope in the living God to reward our training. Good servants train in the word and they train for godliness because they see the value and the benefit it brings. We get to experience the pleasure of God in this life, which will keep us persevering to the end. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us each tonight to trust your promises and to hold fast to your truth. Lord, we believe that you have said this for our good, and so we trust you and cling to you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.